Almost 40 years ago, we achieved one of the greatest public health successes of all time. The WHO announced on May 8th, 1980, that smallpox had been eradicated. In the 20th century alone, 300 million people died. Smallpox was estimated to kill one in three people infected within just a couple of weeks of contracting the virus. Now, I, we've talked about smallpox before because we talked about vaccines, so we talked about Edward Jenner. And I will replay that at the end of this episode in case you missed it, and also just to provide a little bit more of that historical context, but the overview is is that smallpox has been a scourge to humanity for pretty much ever. I mean, probably like centuries and centuries and centuries ago. We don't actually know exactly where it started, but we know that it's pretty much been with us. For most of human history, once it made the leap to humans, it stayed there. So smallpox is one of the most recognizable scourges of humanity because it tends to cause a really specific pustulant rash that spreads all over the body and actually if a person survives smallpox they'll have these scars for the rest of their lives and they can be very disfiguring. What you may not realize though is that what makes smallpox so serious an illness and how it kills people is that those pustules that you see on the skin of a person are actually also inside their body on their organs and so the organ failure that results from that is they you know sort of are like weeping wounds internally for the few weeks after a person has been infected by the virus ultimately makes them very very sick. But we also know that now smallpox today in the modern world is not something that we have to contend with. It's not even a disease that is confronted by people living in parts of the world that are underdeveloped such as the case with other serious illnesses like malaria that we are trying to control. So how did we do it? How did we manage to actually eradicate an illness and could we ever do it again? So the smallpox eradication program was technically started by the World Health Organization in 1959, but it didn't get the funding that it needed. And so it really wasn't until an intensified program was introduced almost a decade later in the late 60s that we started making some actual progress toward eradication. Now, while widespread vaccine campaigns had hoped to basically control the spread, and it was in fact eradicated in the early 50s in North America and Europe, it remained very consistent in places like Africa, Asia, and South America, and these places proved to be much more difficult to get into and actually make progress in terms of reducing the number of smallpox infections and preventing it from spreading. But by the early 70s, within just a few years of these intensified efforts, which really boiled down to securing funding and what I guess you'd call commitment, smallpox was eradicated in one of these countries, South America. By 75, it was gone from Asia, and finally in 77, the last case was recorded in Africa. What made eradication possible over that relatively short time frame when you consider the whole of human history that smallpox had been with us, the strategy for the vaccination effort was what made it possible. And also the nature of smallpox and its infectiousness was what allowed that strategy to work. So smallpox was generally spread from those who were sick to the people closest to them, so family members and people living 
or caring for them in close quarters. The infected person would basically be capable of spreading the virus from the time that the sores made their first appearance, and usually it was pretty obvious to identify them, although sometimes they began in the mouth or throat, so they might not necessarily know right away until they became visible on the outside of the body, could be hard to differentiate it from another similar condition. But once that sort of pustulant rash appeared, it was pretty obvious to everybody what you had. The thing is, though, is that uh, in addition to like the spittle, you know, spreading the virus if you coughed or sneezed, those scabs that would fall off the sores could also spread the virus, and they could be found like on a person's clothing or shed into the bedding that somebody might be cleaning up. So the key here, though, is that smallpox can only be spread from human to human. It doesn't have what they call a reservoir in another host, like in an animal, that it could then jump back to humans after spending some time somewhere else. This is also the case for something like tetanus, for which dirt is a reservoir. I mean, we can't just like dump a bunch of antibiotic in the dirt in our backyard. Or like, can we? But maybe we shouldn't. Anyway, other infectious diseases that are likewise very serious and virulent, like Ebola, have multiple hosts that are also reservoirs, which means that there are multiple ways in which the disease can spread. Smallpox was a prime candidate for eradication because they only had to worry about getting rid of it in one host, us. And it's easier to control the spread of a pathogen when you just have one host to worry about and that host can be vaccinated. So in the industrialized world, the strategy began by more widespread vaccination efforts, although the WHO realized that it wasn't reasonable to assume that they could literally vaccinate every person in the world against smallpox. So they were really looking at trying to vaccinate people who had been closest to those who had had smallpox and would have been the most likely to be exposed. And compared to other infectious diseases, the time between when you're infected versus when you actually start infecting others is kind of a lag. It's somewhere like half a month or 17 days-ish, which is enough time to vaccinate a community if smallpox is known to be lurking in the neighborhood. So the vaccine itself was also, you know, fairly good at providing protection, um, not just immediate, but for up to like a decade, if not several. And when people were vaccinated but did get sick anyway, the illness tended to be much less severe and was rarely fatal. But getting the vaccine to the parts of the world that needed it most and where it remained stubbornly endemic in the 1960s required funding. And in the country's hardest hit, it would have been costing around 10 cents per person to vaccinate something like in the 98 millions. Now the program was facing shortages primarily because it was relying on donations of the vaccine and also because the people doing the reporting were doing a really shoddy ass job. So the program was also in the shadow of the WHO's malaria program, which had more support but was still not doing that much better. So trying to secure funding or making people feel like it was worthwhile to try to continue to vaccinate against smallpox was challenging. But we know that the smallpox eradication program went on to become basically the most successful public health initiative like ever. And part of the reason for this was that the program evolved and it learned from what wasn't working, not just within its own structure, but by looking at the failure or the lack of progress in other campaigns. So the WHO actually changed the program's framework from a strict set of rules to guidelines or principles, which allowed individual nations or individual regions to really customize the program and work in a way that was more flexible. They also doubled down on their reporting and research efforts, which helped them to secure government funding. They also chose to use some of that to invest in education.
education, training, and supplies that would allow them to actually train members of affected communities in endemic countries to administer the vaccine, which helped offset the staff shortages that the WHO faced and reduce the program's cost. And this was important because at the time, there actually weren't that many epidemiologists or infectious disease specialists who were familiar with smallpox, and of course, the ones that were were clearly in demand. So the new program and product, which was a freeze-dried vaccine that traveled well, was really what allowed the program to be successful. And it was. In October of 1977, 10 years, 9 months, and 26 days after the start of the intensified version of the program, the last endemic case of smallpox was recorded in Somalia. So after another two years of surveillance that was undertaken, the WHO declared smallpox eradicated on May 8th, 1980, which was almost 40 years ago. Now in terms of money, because money talks, and I mean, I think it would be enough that we managed to have this like incredible feat of epidemiological success in terms of tracking and then ultimately eradicating this horrific disease from humanity. Money talks. So basically, if you think about the economic impact of this disease, and then you think about like money that was invested, take the US for example. So the US was actually like the biggest benefactor of this program, and they invested some $90 million in vaccines. What we know now is that compared to the extreme economic impact of smallpox, if you line up like the amount that would have had to be invested to like deal with smallpox versus how much they actually invested as a country, the United States saves the value of its investment every 26 days. So in other words, uh, yeah, it was kind of financially worth it to invest in eradicating this disease, not just because it doesn't kill millions of people anymore, but also because we're saving money. So I think we should be investing in more programs. But I mean, what do I know? So let's talk about vaccine development for a minute. Basically, there are two types that we're the most familiar with, live attenuated or inactivated. Live attenuated vaccines are sometimes referred to as having a live virus, which causes a great deal of misunderstanding for people. It's not exactly a misnomer, but it isn't quite literal either because viruses by nature are not alive and therefore cannot be killed. They do, however, replicate a finite number of times. And so therefore, live attenuated viruses have been basically put through the ringer. Like <laughs> they've, been, um, they've been passed through usually passed through a series of test tubes 50, 70, 100 times while then checking to make sure that the virus hasn't mutated in response to that uh, in order to weaken it. So if you run it through, if you run a virus through the paces so that it can only, you know, it's replicated almost all of the times it possibly can, then it's not going to be strong enough to infect anybody. That being said, it's still going to be the virus in its kind of core form. So when the body is exposed to it, it learns to recognize it, but the virus can't add adequately infect you. So that's why when you get like a live virus vaccine, you know, you want your body to have an immune response to it because it builds up an immunity through being vaccinated, but it's not strong enough to actually make you sick. So on the other hand, you have inactivated vaccines, which are from loosely dead viruses, but mostly bacteria um, that have been rendered basically dead through things like formaldehyde or formalin, sometimes I think very, very high temperatures that basically render them completely incapable of causing infection. Of course, that being said, uh, unlike a live attenuated virus, um, 
based vaccine, they're not going to have the same kind of immune response. It's not going to be as strong and it probably isn't going to last as long. So inactivated vaccines usually require you to get subsequent doses or sometimes booster shots. There are also a couple of other different kinds. Maybe we'll talk about those. But these are the two sort of like foundational forms of like how we make vaccines. You might be familiar with a gentleman by the name of Louis Pasteur. So you probably are thinking about pasteurization, which is a technique for making food stuffs like milk safer for consumption when they are not immediately fresh by exposing them to very, 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 very hot temperatures so that the bacteria that could potentially be harmful gets killed. Pasteur was also very interested in broader applications of germ theory, including a lot of stuff that led to vaccine development. And he himself developed a vaccine for rabies. Rabies, as you may be aware, is generally going to be fatal in humans. It is passed from an infected animal, usually through a bite. Even in Pasteur's time, it had quite a legacy of being terrifying because the symptoms of rabies can be very, very, very scary. You get like the dog that's like foaming at the mouth. And so people were really afraid of rabies. He was consequently kind of fascinated by rabies. So the rabies virus is actually a non segmented, negative-stranded RNA genome virus. Under a microscope, they kind of look like bullets, which is kind of fitting. So its envelope fuses to the host cell membrane and then proceeds to infect it. And once that virus enters the cytoplasm, it replicates, and then you fucked. So he, Pasteur sort of knew through observation that rabies was generally fatal in humans and that, in fact, sometimes the symptoms of rabies could be delayed by weeks or months, so it might be difficult to tell that somebody was infected but he decided that he was going to develop a vaccine and what he did was he grew rabies in rabbits then of course all the rabbits died and when they did he put the tissue out to dry thinking that then he would weaken the virus now basically that theory is very similar to what we talked about in terms of the vaccine structure for either live attenuation or inactivation so he had the right idea in terms of being able to to have enough of a virus, um, virus particles that you could inject it into somebody and get an immune response without making them sick. Now, obviously doing it with rabies is like kind of terrifying because it could have gone very, very, very poorly. Uh, the other thing is, is that Louis Pasteur was a chemist and a biologist. He was not a licensed physician. So the fact that he was even testing or thinking about wanting to test these things in human beings is uh, a little bit questionable. But he kind of lucked out because in 1885, uh, as he was working on this and was uh, subsequently trying to test the vaccine in dogs, he had the opportunity to test it in a human subject. A nine-year-old boy who lived near him had been attacked by a rabid dog. So here's the thing. He basically made it sound like he was ready to test this vaccine in humans, but he hadn't actually done it yet. He just kind of told everybody that like maybe he had and that it was probably going to be like super successful, but he hadn't really done that yet. So he did actually uh, inject it into the boy. The boy lived and he was like, for you. Um, and actually, so the thing is that nobody knew this until many, many, many years after Louis Pasteur died. So he developed this vaccine. It eventually was marginally successful and certainly laid the foundation for the vaccine that we use today that is very successful, both as a preventative measure and in terms of treating somebody who's had an exposure. But Pasteur kept his vaccine quite secret. Uh, he kept his notes very secret and he didn't actually sort of give anybody any information about the uh, sort of trialing that he had done 
either in animals or humans. And it was only after he died that people actually were able to access that research. And a couple of things happened. I mean, it was important because it led to sort of a refinement of the process that led to a, you know, a more successful vaccine. But it also proved that he had been basically withholding information from people and that he got really lucky with his first sort of, you know, human test trial because he had not been adequately prepared for it and had the opportunity not just randomly presented itself and it hadn't worked, he could have been in deep shit. So, you know, this type of thing in terms of, you know, research existing in silos and people not communicating, it, it obviously is something that still exists within the medical community, within the medical research, broader science community. Um, and we obviously can see that the application for Pesture was, you know, he got lucky. But that being said, um, there's actually a lot of other really interesting stories about vaccine development. I recently did a piece um, for Paste Magazine about the broader sort of topic of vaccine history and the sort of things that went on uh, sort of as vaccines were being developed from a scientific perspective, sort of the approach there. You know, if you want to know more about the history of vaccines, you're going to have to Google that. <laughs>